marking the first anniversary of BC's catastrophic storm. We're resilient. There's a lot of, a lot of people came to help. The atmospheric river that caused epic flooding, destroying farms, homes, and highways. Memories of the deadly mudslide. Nobody is over it. It's never going to go away. Survivors reflect on the tragedy they barely escaped. And the future of Surrey policing hangs in the balance. We're going to be making a decision tonight that will start the process forward. Council's big vote and a new push to let the people decide instead. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Sophia's off this week. It was one year ago today when it all began, an atmospheric river would end up dumping historic amounts of rain, leading to one of the most expensive and tragic natural disasters in BC history. Kamal Kuramali is live in hope with an update on the progress and the cost of restoring BC's devastated infrastructure. Kamal? Chris, uh, hope was completely isolated about a year ago, uh, completely cut off from the rest of the province because of those mudslides and floods. Now it's probably seen one of the quickest turnarounds with major improvements on the highways surrounding it. And now it's mostly the interior highways that require the most attention. Highways snapped. Bridges broken. So we've been trying to get that they've forgotten about it. Communities cut off. One year later, temporary routes now connect the province. BC in some ways is writing the book on new engineering standards for climate adaptation in the 21st century. Last year's floods impacted thousands of kilometers of BC highways, much of the damage on highways 1, 5 and 8. This is the old Highway 8, completely destroyed, unsalvageable. The new temporary Highway 8 runs parallel to the old one using pre-existing infrastructure like this bridge that used to cater to an old rail line. Two, one, here we go. <laughs> the temporary Highway 8 opening just last week, costing about $100 million. No timeline or cost yet for a permanent replacement. Meanwhile, Highway 1 temporary repairs costing as much as $40 million, with completion set for 2024. On the Coquihalla, temporary routes have cost around $50 million, set to be complete by the winter. All the temporary repairs totaling $240 million. The province estimates all permanent repairs will cost $1 billion to make roads more flood resilient. And so you may be looking at things such as footings, for example, making sure that they're more secure than we saw in some of the ones on the Coquihalla. Banking on the feds to chip in. We expect at least, in the very least, 70% uh, reimbursed to the province. Well, right now we don't have a bridge. But members of the Shakin Indian Band still left out in the cold when the bridge connecting Highway 8 to their homes was decimated. They're still waiting for a replacement so they can go back. And every time that I come down here and have a look at it, you know, it basically a uh, piece of my heart has been broken. Having trouble finding even a temporary home. It's been very stressful and very traumatic. 
and we've had a hard time in Merritt getting housing. We need to move faster, there's no question about that. As this river right. went down and made what was the old road into the new river channel. Meanwhile, so parts of Merritt still unrecognizable. Most of the city underwater one year ago, some roads still waiting to be rebuilt. At the moment, that hinges on funding permits from the provincial government. But the city's biggest concern is the future a plan to improve dikes, and buying out properties to create a bigger flood channel would cost tens of millions. At this point, we have a lot of really good engineering work for how to prevent this, but no particular funding source identified. Money and time, something communities in the interior don't have. And Kamala, it sounds like some of these temporary highways are going to be in use for a while. Will they be able to withstand a similar storm to the one we had last year? Well, Minister Fleming did say that he is confident that the new permanent structures would be able to withstand flooding for decades to come. But with no timeline on when those permanent structures will be put into place, a lot of people living in areas like Hope are concerned that the, new, that the temporary structures currently in place will not be able to withstand flooding should it happen in the near future. Minister Fleming did give his guarantee, though, that because these temporary structures currently in place are bigger, stronger, and have better footing, that they will be able to uh, keep steady and withstand uh, any flooding disasters. Back over to you, Chris. All right, let's hope they are not tested. That's Kamal Karamali reporting for us in Hope tonight. Now, that storm created a cascade of disasters that led to epic flooding in the Fraser Valley. Many farmers are still frustrated with the pace of government assistance. As Grace Key reports, many got their operations up and running very quickly, but rebuilding the rest of their lives is still very much a work in progress. Life continues on the Sumas Prairie, but it's taken time for farmers to get back on their feet. One year after the floods, some still don't know if they qualify for the province's disaster financial assistance. They tell me they haven't forgotten about me. <laughs> I'm not so sure, but that's what they tell me. <laughs> Philip Graham's entire dairy farm was underwater when the flood hit, including the family home. Everything had to be gutted. We didn't insulate our crawl space until this week because I was, I was hoping the funding would pay for that, but at the end of the day, I can't live without an insulated crawl space. I need it. Philip applied for the assistance right away because he knew he was going to need help to rebuild. We didn't qualify originally because we owned the house through our farm. So I don't personally own the house. The farm owns the house and I own the farm. Over the spring, the rules were adjusted, so Philip reapplied. He's still waiting to hear if he qualifies. But like many farmers, he has a second property on his farm. Yeah, we have another house on the property, yeah. And what happened to that one? Uh, same thing, I had water up to the counters, but because we rented out and we also own it through the farm, it's, uh, yeah, they won't cover... Not either, yeah. All these barrels were tipped. It was a mess in here. Blair Sherman's home is also owned by his farm, but with the gross revenue of more than $2 million, he couldn't get funding. The limit was $1 million, but was raised to allow more businesses to qualify. Instead, he applied as a renter. His crawl space and garage were flooded. For contents, he got $168. But if I would have known I was only going to get $168, I wouldn't have went through the whole effort and the time to do all the paperwork. Both farmers say funding to get fields back up and uninsurable infrastructure repair and cleanup was quick. Getting relief for homes was more of a struggle. That's pretty frustrating. You're like, you do all this work, you do all this paperwork and you hear on the news, oh yeah, we're, call we're covering, we're helping people out, we're doing all this stuff for everyone and then you experience it and you're like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> 
They're helping some people out, obviously, but not, yeah, you hear a lot of stories about people that don't qualify. I would say biggest shock was inconsistency. We know some people that had, I don't know, under a foot damage in a basement and they would have got more money than my parents got and they my parents had six to seven feet of water in their basement. Philip and Blair, both third generation farmers, say they couldn't have gotten through the immense cleanup effort without the help of volunteers. Without that, yeah, I would have thrown the towel on probably. Like it's yeah, if we did not have volunteers, if we did not have the community, it would have been I don't I couldn't I couldn't have done it. We're resilient. There's a lot of a lot of people came to help. So I don't I think it would be a dishonor to them if you were to throw in the towel. Grace Key, Global News. Okay, Keith Baldry joins us now with more on the financial assistance that they mm -hmm. say is available and how much has actually been paid out. Keith, what do the numbers show? Yeah, sort of a glass half full, half empty type analogy, Chris. As Grace pointed out in her story, uh, the vast majority of people have successfully uh, navigated their way through the application process and have received disaster funding. But there are exceptions to this, and those are very troubling exceptions. But here are the numbers. As of November 8th, $24.6 million uh, had been allocated for individuals, small businesses, charities, and farms. 84% of all the applications have now been completed. More than $10 million have been contributed to the uh, communities affected in the phrase. Valley, $55 million for 370 separate expense applications. This is for things such as shelter repairs, animal feed replacement, uh, crop replacement and such. And a number of those expenses are, are held by a number of individuals. So again, they're making progress on this. Obviously not fast enough for some of the people affected, but clearly I don't think a lot of people foresaw the level of assistance that was going out the door when this disaster hit a year ago. Whether it was highways, whether it was farms, it was unbelievable. But at least the money has been flowing out the door, but not 100%. Well, we're in the middle of a switch between premiers since that storm came. Uh, mm -hmm. Premier-designate David Eby met his government caucus for the first time today, and you had a chance, I understand, to speak to him right after that. How did it go? Yeah, an unadvertised government caucus meeting. I think a lot of people didn't even know what was going on. I only stumbled upon it because I saw so many government MLAs in the hallways. I caught up with David Eby on his way in. He says it was a very exciting time. It's his first meeting with his new caucus. He says he wants to hit the ground running on some key issues starting next week. Well, there are huge pressing issues for British Columbians uh, that I take really seriously, and uh, you're going to see our government hit the ground uh, running on those issues, absolutely. Uh, building on what we've done and doing more, which is what British Columbians expect, issues like housing and health care, uh, public safety, uh, you'll see it quite quickly from us. So it's interesting, he did make reference to new legislation coming into the House next week. There's only four more sitting days, Chris. Not clear how he's going to be able to pass legislation in such a short time period. It takes a minimum of three days to pass legislation unless there's uh, unanimous consent to do it uh, quicker than that. And it seems to be at least one bill on uh, housing, another one on public safety. It's going to be a very interesting week with the new Premier in place. As of Friday, he gets sworn in in Vancouver and then gets to work in the legislature on Monday. He's going to have to work fast, obviously. All right, Keith, yep. thanks very much. All right, back to the epic storm of 2021. The biggest tragedy in terms of loss of human life during last year's atmospheric river flooding was the slide on Duffy Lake Road. It killed five people. Amata Gahi talked to one survivor who's still angry about the human factors that contributed to that disaster. Everybody was just kind of panicking. We knew there was people there. We... We just didn't know how many. The speed at which the unstable dirt and debris came tumbling down the mountainside made this mudslide unavoidable for those below. It was a rumble and it 
like these big massive trees, like they were just cracking like twigs. I can't really even describe it. And just so you could feel the vibration in the ground and, and it was almost like an earthquake. An earlier slide had blocked traffic, leaving many in a vulnerable position and five people directly in the path of the falling earth. It was just very heavy because we had no idea that they were even there. Search and rescue efforts led to the discovery of four bodies belonging to Kevin Hefner, Stephen Taylor, as well as Anita and Mirsad Hadzik, while Brett Dietrichs was never found. In the days and weeks after the tragedy, online fundraisers for the victims and their grief-stricken families saw donations total almost $400,000. Dean Hopkins lost his close friend in the slide. It's like losing a family member, and I think about him all day. Although the two-day rainstorm that led up to the fatal mudslide on Highway 99 is considered a 1 in 50 or even 100-year event, the families of the victims through a class-action lawsuit are now determined to prove those casualties could have been avoided. This um, injury occurred because of the negligence of the Crown. Lawyer Robert Gibbons, lead plaintiff, is the little girl who lost her parents in the slide. He says she deserves compensation from the provincial government, whose job it was to ensure the highway was safe. This is a tragedy in many respects. Uh, she's lost both parents. In fact, she's so young she won't probably remember her parents. Her grandmother now has to quit her job to look after her. She needs a lot of care. One year after the disaster and its impacts still heavily felt by the people who were there that day. You also have to move on eventually. It's hard, but you got to do it. Of those involved, many still fear driving that stretch of the Duffy Lake Road. Emadagahi, Global News. Yeah, we'll bring in meteorologist Christy Gordon now with more on how climate change factors into these types of extreme weather events. Christy? Well, Chris, the research uh, was produced by and uh, carried out by Environment and Climate Change Canada, and that was in collaboration with the Pacific C Climate Impact Consortium. And what they found was the probability of an atmospheric river with the amount of water vapor we experienced last year is 60% more likely because of climate change. Now, in addition, they looked at the event from the perspective of the extreme river levels that we had. And the report actually explains the factors that cause the rivers to be really a one in 100 year event. For example, the ground was so saturated leading up to it. We had a surge in temperature, which caused significant snow melt. And we had a number of wildfire burn scars in the area. And that has a different impact on the terrain when we get so much rainfall. Now, their analysis actually showed that the probability of this type of an event on the rivers between October and December has increased by 120 to 330 percent because of climate change. And the probability, as they also found, that the probability of such events uh, is expected to increase in the future. Chris, back to you. All right, things we'll have to get used to and plan for. Thanks very much, Christy. We'll check in a little later. New twists and turns in the Surrey policing saga. The mayor was all smiles at a sod-turning event today, but her council is not united when it comes to the new police service. They'll vote on the path forward tonight, but now the newly formed Surrey Police Board says the city doesn't have all the facts. And one councillor says the people should decide instead. That's next on the News Hour.
Comedian and car lover Jay Leno seriously injured in an accident at his home garage. The details just ahead on the news hour. And a handy young boy takes matters into his own hands when the White Rock Pier needed some tender loving care. He's not even a teenager. He's only nine. I was wrong when I wrote that banner. But I'm willing to accept that I make mistakes sometimes. All right, the future of the Surrey Police Service is on the agenda at Surrey Hall this evening. The mayor and councillors will vote on its future, whether to keep moving forward or transition back to the RCMP. As Catherine Urquhart reports, the rhetoric from both sides has become more intense as the vote draws closer. As members of the Surrey Police Service walk the beat, Surrey City Council is poised to take a vote, one that could see those officers marched out the door and the RCMP remaining police of jurisdiction. A corporate report gives two options, keeping the RCMP or moving forward with transitioning to the SPS. We're going to be making a decision tonight that will start the process forward and we are doing exactly what Minister Farnworth asked us to do. According to the SPS board, reversing the transition would result in an estimated $188.5 million loss of investment into SPS. In sunk costs, and potential severance liability for walking this transition back. So those are very, very expensive uh, implications for the city should they decide to, should the province decide to reverse this transition. I can't trust any numbers because I haven't seen them and our city CFO has not seen those numbers. The SPS union is asking for the vote to be delayed and is calling for a meeting with mayor and council. Councillor Linda Annis continues to push for a referendum. I want Minister Farmworth to call for a referendum. It's been such a divisive issue in Surrey. We need to get a clear mandate for either the Surrey Police Service to move forward or for us to return to the RCMP. Mayor Brenda Locke says a detailed formal report, including cost implications, will be submitted to Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth November 28th. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Just ahead, a local man has a close call in Turkey. Someone told us where he's going. Yeah, there was a terrorist attack there. The deadly bombing in a popular tourist area and how he and his wife just missed it. But first, BC prison escapees face a charge of murder. What happened on the first day of their trial? Next. Two inmates who escaped from prison are on trial for a murder they're alleged to have committed after they broke out from the prison near Victoria. Zachary Armitage and James Lee Bush are both charged with first-degree murder. Aaron MacArthur was at B.C. Supreme Court in Vancouver for day one of the trial. It didn't take much more than 15 minutes. Crown counsel in a succinct opening statement laying out the framework of its case against Zachary Armitage and James Lee Bush. Crown laying out for the jury what evidence it intends to call throughout the course of their trial. Both men pleaded not guilty to charges of first-degree murder. According to the Crown, the evidence will show the two accused entered Martin Payne's Machosen home early in the morning of July 8th after he left for work. While he was out, Crown intends to show that his phone was used several times to make calls to friends and to a water taxi company. Crown says it can show the call was made looking for a ride to the mainland. Crown also alleges Payne was killed in his home the same day as those phone calls. Evidence will show he left work at around 2.30 in the afternoon, but wasn't found dead for four days. 
Crown will call witnesses that can provide DNA evidence that put the accused in Martin Payne's red Ford F-150 pickup. The vehicle recovered in Oak Bay. Armitage and Bush were located and arrested a short distance away from the pickup on July 9th. Crown says they were wearing Martin Payne's clothing and had his backpack. Payne was reported missing July 12th. Police found the 60-year-old dead on his bathroom floor. Crown says the evidence will show significant chop wounds made by a hatchet-type weapon and acute injuries made by a knife. DNA experts will also take the stand. Crown expects them to testify there were three DNA profiles found in Payne's home where he lived alone, his and those of the two accused. The first witnesses on the stand confirmed that phone calls were made by Zachary Armitage from Martin Payne's home on July 9th, 2019. Crown expects to call witnesses from the William Head Institution, police investigators, as well as forensic investigators, both men being tried together. Aaron McCarthy, Global News. We're hearing firsthand tonight from a North Vancouver man who narrowly avoided becoming a victim of the bombing in Istanbul over the weekend. As Negar Mojtahedi reports, he's now facing a major hurdle in his return to Canada. This is the moment an explosion went off in the heart of Istanbul, Turkey, at a popular shopping street in the area of Taksim Square, happening Sunday, 4.20 local time. Now mourners, like this grieving mother, saying goodbye to their loved ones. At least six people are dead and dozens badly hurt. We are at an Airbnb just 10 minutes away from the Taksim Square. Mostafa Vafodus, a North Vancouver resident, and his wife, Pune, who lives in Iran, consider themselves lucky and grateful to be alive. We were on our way to there. Uh, we saw people, like we saw the crowd coming uh, back, and uh, someone told us where you're going. Uh, there was a terrorist attack there. We turned back, came back to Airbnb. If he had left like five minutes earlier. Mostafa has been in Turkey with his wife since the start of October and is desperate to return home to Canada with his spouse. But her visa application has been denied by Immigration Canada twice. It basically puts us in a situation that we can't, we, we don't know what to do. The couple says they feel helpless, with one option staying in Turkey where they feel unsafe after the bomb blast, or to go to Iran, where hundreds of protesters have been killed by the regime there, and nearly 15,000 arrested, according to the United Nations. We're trying to avoid like any crowd. It's, it, it feels scary, and it is scary. I mean, like it just happened, and uh, we are still shocked. Turkey has detained 46 suspects in connection with the deadly bomb, blaming Kurdish activists, but no group has claimed responsibility so far. Negar Moshehedi, Global News. A BC Mountie went from enjoying an off day with the family to jumping directly into the line of duty. Where's Daddy running there? This is video taken by the wife of Kelowna Constable Nathan Nickel, who sprang into action in Lake Country back on November 1st. Constable Nickel heard another officer struggling with a suspect, so he secured his family, parked his vehicle, and ran to help out. As a, a police officer, we're, we, we're always involved in things that uh, our families don't necessarily know about or witness, and so once in a while, and it's happened to me in my personal life also, I've been involved in things off-duty, and uh, the wives, the spouses aren't necessarily uh, used to that uh, that thing, but uh, thank goodness nobody was injured uh, and everything worked out well. 
Men städa. The individual was arrested and is facing a disturbance charge. Della Palera says the matter is still under investigation and more charges could follow. Well, it is the day that Surrey Christmas Bureau was hoping for but worried would never come. The Bureau has begun moving into its toy depot into this year's location, a former Safeway store on King George Boulevard. The Christmas Bureau put out a plea last month saying it hadn't been able to find a donated location for 2022 because of a lack of available space in the rapidly growing city. But the city of Surrey and Fraser Health teamed up to find space in the former Safeway, which the Bureau will now share with Fraser Health. The next step, the Bureau says it needs some help from you. We are definitely going to need a lot of toys. Uh, we have some in stock that are, are left over from last year. That is probably going to last us a week. We already have over a thousand applications for assistance in. Usually we, we provide toys for about 4,500 children every year. So that's a lot of toys when you consider that each child gets a small, a medium and a large toy. The Toy Depot will be open and ready to receive donations of toys and financial gifts beginning on Thursday, and it will then be open to families next Monday. So give if you can. Still ahead, a young boy turns handyman. We found a hole. How he lent a hand and some tools when he noticed the iconic White Rock Pier needed some repairs. And fans send Jay Leno encouraging messages after the comedian and car lover suffers some serious burns. Pink Shirt Day reminds us all to be kind, to lift each other up, to speak up for those who don't have a voice. You know, like every day. The CKNW Kids Fund Pink Shirt Day, presented by Global BC and CKNW 980. Visit our online store at pinkshirtday.ca. The dust still hasn't settled from last week's midterm elections in the U.S. We know Democrats will keep control of the Senate, but the House remains up for grabs, and it could go either way. And now, former President Donald Trump is set to re-enter the fray, planning to announce his 2024 bid for the presidency tomorrow night. Jackson Prosco reports. In Bali, a long-distance victory lap by President Joe Biden. The American people prove once again that democracy is who we are. Democrats' big wins came after most of Donald Trump's hand-picked candidates went down in defeat, taking with them Trump's lies about the 2020 election. There was a strong rejection of election deniers at every level from those seeking to lead our states and those seeking to serve in Congress. The searing rebuke has weakened the former president's standing, raising questions about a Trump comeback in 2024 on the eve of his planned campaign announcement. The president tweets Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done. Speaking to ABC News, former Vice President Mike Pence seized the moment, openly criticizing his former boss for the events of January 6th. It angered me. I mean, the president's words were reckless. It was clear he decided to be part of the problem. Behind the scenes, some Republicans are reportedly pushing Trump to delay his campaign launch. What we got to do, we got to get out and vote especially with the Senate race in Georgia between Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock headed to a December runoff. Maybe his announcement and his prominence in the campaign, maybe that's another bad sign for Republicans in a, in a runoff situation. Welcome to Congress. Newly elected members of Congress have already started orientation at the Capitol. Very exciting. Yeah, yeah. 
taking, uh, taking a piece of history right now. But nothing can prepare rookie Republicans for the turmoil that awaits. The party is not just split over Trump, but also what to do about leaders like Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy, who oversaw the party's disappointing election performance. Their fates, along with control of the House, are still undecided. Jackson Prosco, Global News, Washington. Former late-night talk show host and noted car guy Jay Leno is in hospital receiving treatment for serious burns to his face from a gasoline fire. The comedian and car enthusiast was in the garage of his L.A. home when one of the vehicles apparently erupted into flames without warning. The left side of the 72-year-old's face was burned, but thankfully his eye and his ear were not severely damaged. He was taken to the Grossman Burn Center in L.A. for treatment. Leno was scheduled to attend a financial conference in Las Vegas this past weekend, but plans were cancelled, obviously, following this incident. Some welcome news today for parents who've been struggling to find pain medication for their kids. Health Canada says it's secured a foreign supply of children's acetaminophen that'll be available to the public in the coming weeks. It's still unclear where it's coming from, but officials say the products meet Health Canada standards. This will, will bring uh, comfort to a lot of parents and it assists us because without that, frequently you get people visiting emergency rooms who ordinarily would not visit them if, those, if that uh, medication was there. Parents are being asked to buy only what's needed to ensure that others have access to. Just ahead, a dream cruise that almost didn't happen. Thought it was a joke at first. Why this passenger was escorted off the ship just minutes after he boarded. And a call out from Coquitlam RCMP after someone lost a big wad of cash at the local Ikea. What you have to do to claim it. From the stories that touch us all to the events happening all around us. When BC needs to connect, BC turns to the source that brings us together. Global News, connect. A shocking start to a dream vacation for a Vancouver man this week. He was escorted off his cruise ship, told it was unsafe for him to travel solo as a blind person. I almost wondered at first if it was some sort of joke that somebody was putting me up to a, to a prank, but I learned soon on him that this is, this is very serious. Donovan Tilsley is a swimmer who was the flag bearer for Canada at the 2008 Paralympics. He was just into his second drink on a six-day Virgin Caribbean cruise Sunday when he was told the ship didn't have adequate supports for him, so he was escorted back to a Miami hotel. But late last night, he got a call from the cruise line saying there'd been a miscommunication, and he would have his cruise paid for, be flown to Honduras to join the ship, and given an upgrade and a credit for a future cruise. This is also presents a real coachable moment for people in the travel industry and for cruise ships in general. You know, just because somebody can't see doesn't mean that they aren't a competent traveler and can travel by themselves. Tilsley says he's traveled the world solo and even skied double black diamond runs without any problem. Bon voyage. Hope he'll enjoy that. Lots of sunshine here. We'll bring Christy in for a look at the forecast. But this morning, as bright as it was, all I could hear was those foghorns going off mm -hmm. in Burrard Inlet. Lots of fog. 
That's exactly right, Chris. And really, that's what we'll be watching in the days to come is how much fog will we see and will we be able to burn that fog off? And sometimes we aren't in this type of scenario. Here's a quick look at a shot from uh, the Burnaby area. This is uh, the Brentwood uh, Brentwood area and you can see that thick fog. And yes, the foghorns were going. We were able to burn it off today, but there were some areas like Kelowna that had a really tough time. In that area, what they see is this valley cloud and underneath it's cold and cloudy and up above, which is where this photo was taken, it's uh, clearly still cold with the icicles, but at least they're seeing the sunshine. So uh, we're going to see that pattern across much of the province in the days to come as this upper level ridge continues to strengthen. And it will shift a little bit over the inland regions, and that will help to sort of solidify that potential for an inversion. We're also seeing air quality advisories because of this. Uh, it's trapping in a lot of the smog down below. So we're seeing uh, in through the Prince George care region as well as the southern parts of the Okanagan and boundary area uh, some air quality advisories in place because of that trapping in of the um of the air mass there. So for tomorrow, any of the cloud cover you see is really more likely that fog or low level cloud that we're going to experience. Look at the high in Kelowna, a high of only zero degrees, so it will be chilly. Thankfully for much of the south coast, I'm only expecting patchy fog tomorrow and we are expecting it to burn off. So high should reach about eight degrees, but come Wednesday and maybe even into Thursday, there's a chance that that fog may be much thicker. So we'll be watching to see if we're able to burn it off at this point. We do expect to, at least by the afternoon hours and things will warm up. Tonight's central windows weather window coming to you from uh, the North Vancouver area. Thank you to Peter from this. This is a shot from Saturday, but it also gives you the perspective of that really cool uh, fog layer with the blue sky up above. Chris, back to you. What a cool shot. Okay, thanks very much, Christy. So did you lose a large amount of cash? Well, Coquitlam RCMP have recovered it and they'd be happy to return it to you if you're the rightful owner. The money was located Friday at the Coquitlam IKEA store. It's believed it was dropped there sometime in early September. If the money is yours, you can contact Coquitlam RCMP and provide the denominations and you'll have to know how the cash was stored. Police are encouraging anyone who loses a large sum of money to report it. Obviously, whoever lost it did not do that. All right, Squire is here now with a look ahead to sports. Was I at the Ikea lately? <laughs> I don't think so. Doing some interior decorating, were you? Uh, yeah, that's <laughs> not for me. That's for other no. people to get the furniture and bring it to my house. Uh, the Whitecaps are saying goodbye to a handful of players you would know, including Lucas Cavallini. He did not have his option picked up for 2023, meaning he's free to go elsewhere. This after three seasons in Vancouver. All right, look forward to more on that. Also tonight, the fourth grader who got busy trying to fix the White Rock Pier. type during oh, the no. show you don't have your novel to work well, on you know i pulled the keyboard over here but then i realized i'm a loud typer and that's been disruptive in the past no, no, so it wasn't disruptive to me <laughs> but to everybody out there mm -hmm. who couldn't hear a thing it I'm wasn't saying. good uh it was strange watching that game last night between the boston bruins and the vancouver canucks and this is why boston had three players who were with them during the 2011 stanley cup final against vancouver still playing 
11 years later, Patrice Bergeron, Brad Marchand, and David Krejci. Bergeron and Marchand scored against the Canucks last night. Meanwhile, three Canucks, the guys in the picture beside me, from that same series are no longer playing, but tonight they're going into the Hockey Hall of Fame. Roberto Luongo and the twins, Henrik and Daniel, who were drafted at the same time by Brian Burke, but tonight they go in separately. Well, not on stage at the same time. First up was Daniel Sedin, and the guy with his plaque was the man who drafted him, Brian Burke. Now, we should say that Henrik arrived late for Hall of Fame weekend, which actually started on Friday because he was still getting over COVID. When he did get there, he was part of a question and answer session with fans. And one of the questions was, had Hank and Danny ever switched uniforms during their entire hockey career to fool people who could not tell them apart? Here's Henrik's answer. We've never changed jerseys. We've never done anything like that. The only thing we have done is uh, at a face-off or a few face-offs, I've been thrown out and I've been skating over to Danny, skating around him, and then go back in again and take the <laughs> I wonder if that worked. It's actually a good idea. Uh, the Canucks finish off their uh, road trip tomorrow in Buffalo, the five-game road trip, and the way it's feeling, maybe. This will be Bruce Boudreaux's last game as the Canucks head coach with all that Jim Rutherford has said about his team not having structure in the defensive play, not getting any better, and the goalies unable to bail the Canucks defense out most nights. You would be right to be pessimistic for Bruce Boudreaux's future in Vancouver. But if he does get fired, I hope he doesn't, but if he does get fired, what will that say about the Canucks' core group of players, which would have then been together for the firing of two coaches in less than a year? The thing is, the players seem to like Boudreaux, but they still can't seem to win for him this season like they did last year. And Boudreaux likes them. And he's not about to blame them for what's happening, but he says they cannot mentally check out no matter what's going on. Well, I mean, if they're going to get mentally uninvolved after 16 games, then we've got a, a bigger, bigger problem than, than we think here. But, I mean, uh, no, I mean, they want to win. Um, uh, you know, they, they want to do good things right now, and they're just not doing them. And if you look at the numbers, here's why. The win percentage almost last in the NHL. The goal differential bad. Goals against, 4.06 a game. You cannot live that way in the NHL. And their penalty kill is the worst. They had the problem last year under Travis Green. It hasn't gotten better this year. Their power play, though, has been very good, but it's not been able to make up for the other poor numbers defensively. Well, one day after being named the Canada's World Cup team, Lucas Cavallini has been dropped by the Vancouver Whitecaps. They decided that picking up the final year of his contract wasn't worth it. And Vancouver is looking for a new designated player, likely someone who can score goals. Quite frankly, for the most part, with the occasional exception, the Whitecaps have had pretty much the same luck finding a good designated player as the Canucks have had at the NHL's draft lottery. Some thought the Whitecaps should pick up his option and then sell him, but rumors say Cavallini's option was $2.8 million, which would be too much for other teams to buy him off of Vancouver. Now, this past season was Cavallini's best as far as goal scoring is concerned. He had nine in 24 games. Nine goals is the same amount he scored in his previous two seasons combined. When he was signed by the Whitecaps, we learned his nickname was The Tank but it could have just as easily been the loose cannon because that's what he was at times. No better example of that was when he stepped on a player's neck this year and got suspended. 
It got to the point where the Whitecaps really couldn't trust Cavallini to keep his cool anymore. And Cavallini being dropped wasn't the only move Axel Schuster made. They picked up an option on Derek Cornelius's contract, who's on loan right now to a Greek team. And even though they didn't pick up the options for Tosant Ricketts and uh, Florian Youngworth, they may stay with the Whitecaps in different jobs. Ricketts is already helping out in the front office. Uh, Youngworth has said he'd like to get into coaching. Four other players were also told they are not coming back next season. One of them is defender Jake Nerwinski, who had been with the Whitecaps since they drafted him in 2017, but he wasn't as strong defensively as the Whitecaps wanted him to be this past season. Another gone is Leo Owusu, who had been a Whitecap since 2020. Marcus Godinho was released after a year and a half as a Vancouver Whitecaps defender. And also gone is goalkeeper Cody Cropper. He signed with Vancouver last March and played in 15 games for the Whitecaps. There you go. That's it. And That's no it. typing. Well, thank you very much. I oh, you're appreciate welcome. that. Anytime. I'm here for you. All right, coming up, woodworking for nine-year-olds. The kid who stepped in when he noticed the White Rock Pier needed some repair work. That's next. Julie Nolan's filling in for Jordan on the night shift with a preview now of what's coming up on Global News at 11. Julie? Yeah, an important night in Syria, as we heard earlier in the news hour, as their city council debates whether to transition to a police force from the RCMP. Romina Dea will have the latest for us. Plus, we'll tell you about a dramatic rescue over Kamloops last night when an injured paraglider needed to be pulled to safety from Mount Paul by a cormorant search and rescue helicopter. How he was finally spotted in the dark of night. Those stories and more tonight on Global News at 11. Chris? Sounds good. Thanks very much, Julie. So what do you do when you see something that needs to be fixed? A young boy sprang into action when he noticed a problem with the White Rock Pier. Kylie Stanton has the story of a nine-year-old proving you're never too young to help out. In its 108-year-old existence, the White Rock Pier has seen its fair share of repairs. The sound of construction rather common around here, oh. but it's not usually a nine-year-old doing the drilling. It looks really good. Everyone's going around it. On a walk with his father Sunday morning, Cruz Villanueva came across this, a large hole in one of the boards that appeared to be rotting. My son looked at me and says, Papa, we have to do something about this or somebody's really going to get hurt. The pair quickly went to fetch their tools. Yep. We grabbed the two-by-twos and we uh, grabbed the screwdriver. And he just went ahead and ran down and started fixing it. Within 10 minutes, the hole was patched and cones in place, warning others to be careful, only adding to the work the city is undertaking on an annual basis. We do a lot of repairs to it every year. I think that so far this year we've replaced 68 planks. But at 470 metres long, it's an ongoing effort and one that requires a significant amount of funding from all levels of government. We're looking at, I think, at about $15 million to, for the seismic upgrades that are needed to be done. So it's a lot of money. In the meantime, the city is warning residents not to take it upon themselves to fix any damage they may come across and instead report it to the municipality. And while the Villanuevas have since done just that... I don't want anyone to get hurt. They weren't willing to take any chances at the time. We literally stopped three or four people from falling in it just in a few minutes. It turns out the hole was nothing some wood, a couple of screws, and a whole lot of heart 
couldn't fix. I know everyone's safe and it's pretty secure and we're good to go. Kylie Stanton, Global News. Good to go indeed. Well done, Cruz and Papa as well. Uh, okay, before we go, another look at the uh, forecast. Sunny days, but yes, very foggy in some spots in the mornings. That's exactly right. So the big ridge of high pressure is expected to last through the weekend. So we are expecting dry conditions. The biggest thing would be, will you see fog? Will you be underneath that fog? And that really could cause a very cloudy and cool feel to your next couple of days. But we are expecting the cloud fog to dissipate tomorrow, at least by the afternoon hours on Wednesday as well and into Thursday, where we should be warming up to near seasonal values, 8 and then 10 degrees potentially on Thursday. All right, thanks, uh, Christy. And big night for the Sedin Squire. Yes, uh, it, I, we didn't get a chance to show it, but in Daniel's speech, he said that Henrik's a better player than him. But I'm guessing uh, he hopes that Henrik comes up and says, Daniel, you're a better player than him. That's me. right. Interesting, they didn't go up together. <laughs> they well, they didn't go up together. together. They went up separately. Yeah. All right, look forward to that coverage later. Thanks for watching, everyone. Have a great night.